Isaiah 64, we had the prophet Isaiah calling for God to break into history as he had done at Sinai so that the darkened hearts of Israel would return to the Lord. Isaiah observed that the people in this separation because of their sins were not coming back to God, but their hearts were being hardened all the more, and God's righteous judgment was now falling on them. Isaiah sees the land is in desolation. He perceives the destruction that is coming because of their sins. And rather than people then seeing these judgments and returning back to God, they have simply run the other way. And so as Isaiah has cried out for the Lord to do things, you can see that in the last verse of Isaiah 64 even, where he says there, Will you restrain yourself at these things, O Lord? The final two chapters now of Isaiah record God's answer to what Isaiah has asked. And these final two chapters are continuing this glorious ascent. As God answers Isaiah and gives another picture then of how glorious it will be when Christ comes and all the blessings and benefits that will come from that. Uh, This is a text where we see the phrase, the new heavens and the new earth. We're going to spend the majority of our time uh, looking at that. uh, And I'm going to do my best to try to be very clear about that and uh, stay with me in it because it's going to be fun to look at that because that's been a, a very interesting teaching over time about what that means in regards to what God is doing. In Isaiah 65, and you begin in verse 1, notice how God just simply responds now as Isaiah has cried out. God says, I was ready to be sought by those who did not ask for me. I was ready to be found by those who did not seek me. I said, here am I, here am I to a nation that was not called by name. Interesting beginning. He just says, I've been here. (laughs) You can come to me at any time. I'm I'm looking for people to come to me, he says. And what in particular is interesting is that it's more challenging to see it here. But the Apostle Paul in Romans 10 verse 20 says uh, he's talking about the Gentiles. Here is God now saying, I'm holding out my hands. I'm going to bring you in. I'm calling for people to come to me. And notice he says that it is a nation that is not called by my name. So I'm looking out beyond the people right now who are in rebellion and who are in sin. And Isaiah many times has predicted the coming in of the nations, the coming in of the Gentiles. And here he does that again and says, I'm going to tell the world, people who at the time did not seek for me, who did not ask for me, that they are able to come in. But then notice the contrast that verse 2 gives. I spread out my hands all day to a rebellious people who walk in a way that is not good, following their own devices. And we might have the tendency to think, well, he's still talking about the Gentiles. But in Romans 10, verse 21, Paul then goes on and says, but regarding Israel, he says, and then quotes this line and says, well, here's God holding out his hands to a rebellious people. So here is God taking a step back and saying, here's the situation, Isaiah. I have my hands held out to everybody, to the peoples who did not ask of me, who are not called by my name. I am saying to them, here am I, here am I. They are able to come to me. But just because I am calling for the Gentiles to come does not mean that Israel is rejected. He says now in verse 2 to Israel, I've held out my hands to a rebellious people. You can still come in. 
And for those of you who've been with our Roman study, you can see how that would work so well, as Paul would argue that very idea in chapters 9, 10, and 11, that though God is calling the Gentiles, that was not to the exclusion of Israel. And this is what Isaiah is seeing in God's response, as God says, yeah, I'm going to bringing in these other peoples, but that does not mean that you can't come in. The problem with Israel is not that God has turned his back on them, as he's going to describe from verse 2 all the way through verse 7, is that the issue is Israel's rebellious. And what a statement to say, I've held out my hands to rebellious people. Here is God saying, I continue to implore them to come to me. I continue to ask them to come to me. And they absolutely refuse. In fact, notice some of the details that that are given here. Like at the end of verse 2. That they walk in a way that is not good, following their own devices. That's a useful line to underline. Here's a good definition of sin. Doing what you want. (laughs) He says they're rebellious people. They follow their own devices. They do what they want to do. They're interested in their own desires rather than the ways and devices and plans of God. And so God says, I'm holding out my hands to a people who don't care about me. They don't want to do what I want. They want to do what they want. They're following their own desires and following their own devices. Verse 3, a people who provoke me to my face continually sacrificing in gardens and making offerings on bricks. Here he says, these people are so rebellious that they're in my face offering to pagan idols. They're offering in idolatrous worship right in front of my very face. They don't even care that these things are an insult to God. And so God says, I'm spreading out my hands to a people who don't do what is good. They walk in their own ways. They follow their own devices. They worship their own idols and they worship their own gods. Verse four, who sit in tombs and spend the night in secret places, who eat pig's flesh and broth of tainted meat is in their vessels. And you know what sounds wrong with all of that? That's a whole lot of uncleanness going on right there, isn't it? Uh, sitting in the tombs. That was defiling according to the law of Moses. Eating pig flesh, I mean, that's like number one, top ten, don't you dare touch those things. Those were unclean. And God says, they care so little about my laws, they were even breaking these things. They're sitting in the tombs and eating pigs. They don't care about the ways of God. Again, emphasizing, they're doing what they want to do. They're concerned about their desires. I don't concerned about the ways of God. But then verse 5 becomes extremely striking. Who say, keep to yourself, do not come near me, for I am too holy. (laughs) So, in all of their actions of they don't do what is right or good, they follow their own devices, they're worshiping their idols, doing what they think is best, living life how they want, eating what they want to eat, breaking all the defilement rules of God, and then they turn around and say, well, we're holy. Stay away, you might defile me because I'm a holy worshiper of God. (laughs) What an interesting picture that God gives about these people. And God's response to that is pretty graphic when he says there at the end of verse 5, These are a smoke in my nostrils, a fire that burns all the day. Behold, it is written before me. 
I will not keep silent, but I will repay. I will indeed repay into their bosom both your iniquities and your father's iniquities together, says the Lord, because you made offerings on the mountains and insulted me on the hills. I will measure into their bosom payment for their former deeds. God just simply says, their sins are before me. They're written down almost like they were in a book. Here they are right before me. And he says something very important where he just says, and they will receive their wages. They'll receive their payment. Which is always interesting how the scriptures depict sin as having a wage, having a payment. Book of Romans, Apostle Paul, chapter 6. The wages of sin is death. You will get what you deserve. And that's what he tells them. There is a wage, there is a payment that is coming for living a life of sin, for choosing to follow your own devices, to worship yourself or other gods. God says, these things are written down before me. I see them, they're right before my eyes. And they will be judged. God will deal with them. Which makes, I think, verses 8 through 10 fascinating. It is something that we have observed over and over and over again in Isaiah. My expectation would be we would come to verses 8 through 10 and God would go, now here's how the wrath is going to fall on you. I mean, we've built right up to it from verse 2 to verse 7. Here's all your sins. Here's all that you've done. You're worthy of wrath. Smoke is in my nostrils, God says. And so I expect the next line to be, and I'm going to vent it out upon you. And here comes my smoke and fire and judgment and wrath. Verse 8. Thus says the Lord. As the new wine is found in the cluster, and they say, do not destroy it, for there is a blessing in it. So I will do for my servant's sake and not destroy them all. I will bring forth offspring from Jacob and from Judah, possessors of my mountains. My chosen shall possess it, and my servants shall dwell there. Sharon shall become a pasture for flocks, and the valley of Acre a place for herds to lie down. For my people who have sought me. In the midst of all of that, he says, there will be a remnant. There will be my chosen people, even though judgment is coming and those who follow their own devices stand against me and they will be judged. He takes a step back and goes, but I will not destroy them all. I'm going to leave a remnant. I'm going to leave some with me. There will be, verse 9, an offspring. End of verse 8. I will do this for my servant's sake, and my chosen shall possess it, verse 9. And he uses language here of Sharon and the Valley of Acre. And those are two geographical places that in our language would be essentially from New York to L.A. You are from edge to edge of the boundaries of Israel. I'm going to restore my people. I'm going to restore their land. I'm going to restore their blessings. There's going to be judgment, but there will be some that will be left. And so here is the gracious God. Because there's not a single person that Isaiah has identified that could raise their hand here and say, well, but we're the righteous few. Remember what we saw back in Isaiah 59. No one is righteous. That whole scene there that even the Apostle Paul quotes to the New Testament. Israel is under condemnation. Israel is under their sin, under the, the condemnation of their sins. 
And yet God says, even still, I will show grace. I will show mercy. I will not utterly destroy. There is a blessing. And so I will bring forth offspring and these will be my people. But before he can go into all those blessings, which he will pick back up in verse 13, watch what he has to come back to, though. Verse 11. But you who forsake the Lord, who forget my holy mountain, who set a table for fortune and fill cups of mixed wine for destiny. I will destine you to the sword and all of you shall bow down to the slaughter because when I called, you did not answer. When I spoke, you did not listen, but you did what was evil in my sight and chose what I did not delight in. God turns back to the judgment and says, and those who forsake me, the ones who have not done what is right, there will be a judgment. And he even identifies an, a curious image in verse 11 when he says, these who set the table for fortune and fill cups of wine for destiny or luck. These were pagan gods. And here is the, an irony that God is giving here. He says, so you want to worship, worship luck and destiny? Here's your destiny. God just kind of goes, I'll give you some destiny. I'll give you some fate. Here's what's going to happen to you. You're going to be judged for your sins because you did not trust in me. And when I called, you did not answer. When I spoke, you did not listen. Therefore, as he says there in verse 12, I will destine you. See the play on words there. I will destine you then to the sword. And notice the other line. We used one picture of what sin looks like. Here's another good picture of sin. End of verse 12. And they chose what I did not delight in. There's another good image of it. Choosing what God does not delight in. That would be a good framework for making your decisions on a regular basis. So is this a right or wrong thing to do? Should I do this? Should I do that? What would God delight in? And here's the picture. They didn't do that. They did not choose the ways of God. They chose their own ways. They did not consider what God cared about. They did not think about what God delighted in. And so now he says judgment is going to fall upon them. But back to the message of hope. Listen to verse 13. It's like he had to break that in. Now, Now pulls back into the gracious God of hope here. Verse 13. For thus says the Lord God, Behold, my servants shall eat. But you shall be hungry. Behold, my servant shall drink, but you shall be thirsty. Behold, my servant shall rejoice, but you shall be put to shame. Behold, my servant shall sing for gladness of heart, but you shall cry out in pain of heart and shall wail for breaking of spirit. So shall leave your, you shall leave your name to my chosen for a curse. And the Lord God will put you to death, but his servants he will call by another name. So that he who blesses himself in the land shall bless himself by the God of truth. And he who takes an oath in the land shall swear by the God of truth. Because the former troubles are forgotten and are hidden from my eyes. Now we're beginning to see a reversal happen here and he already begins us by talking about here's what's going to happen with my servants versus what you're doing my servants will receive all of these blessings but those who are not my servants they are the ones who are going to receive wrath they're going to receive shame you see all of that laid out essentially he says only my obedient children are the ones who are going to experience the blessings of being in my family We understand that truth, I think. 
I've tried to communicate that as my girls are moving, begun in their teenage years and the others moving toward it. I have laid this principle that I've hoped that they will understand. That if you obey the family and do well by the family, there are blessings to experience with the family. But when you rebel against the family, there's going to be pain, there's going to be hardship, there's going to be suffering. (laughs) This is the way it works. You conform to the family, you go along with the plan, and it will go well for you while you are in this house, and you'll receive all kinds of blessings. Choose not to. It will not go well for you. You will not have blessings. You will not have extras. And God is doing the same thing right here as he gives us picture. My servants will eat. Yours will be hungry. My servants will drink. Yours will be thirsty. He's saying, if you would be with me, I would bless you and care for you and give you all the rich blessings of God. But you keep choosing to do your own devices. You keep following your own ways. You keep doing what you think is best. And God says, you're not my people then if that's your thought process. My people choose what I delight in, not what you delight in. A great picture of what God is looking for with his new covenant people. People who choose the ways of God and people who choose what God delights in. That's what defines what this new group of people will be. Now, the hope here really takes off at this moment. This is like a a, a jet airplane that's moving down the runway. And now at verse 16, we are just like bursting into the sky. Because notice what he says at verse 16. He says, here's what's going to happen. With my servants, they're going to be blessed. They're going to be called by a new name. And then notice what he says at the end there. Because the former troubles are forgotten and hidden from my eyes. There's going to be a dramatic change. The former troubles, and I think that would refer to what we've seen already from verses 2 through 7, as well as the sins that have been accounted for really for 65 chapters that we've read about in this prophecy. God says things are going to change and I'm going to have my people. I'm going to have my servants. They're going to seek after me and they will choose their own devices and they will do what God delights in. And their former ways and their former deeds and the former things are now going to be forgotten. And that becomes a critical point where he is now taking off in verse 17. Here's the very famous line, verse 17. For behold, I create a new heavens and a new earth. And the former things shall not be remembered or come into mind. But be glad and rejoice forever in that which I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem to be a joy and her people to be a gladness. I will rejoice in Jerusalem and be glad in my people. No more shall be heard in it the sound of weeping and the cry of distress. No more shall there be in it an infant who lives but a few days or an old man who does not fill out his days. For the young man shall die a hundred years old and a sinner a hundred years old shall be accursed. There shall build, they shall build houses and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and eat their fruit. They shall not build and, and another inhabit, nor shall they plant and another eat. For like the days of of a tree shall the days of my people be, and my chosen shall long enjoy the work of their hands. They shall not labor in vain, or bear children for calamity, for they shall be the offspring of the blessed of the Lord, and their descendants with them. 
Before they call, I will answer. While they are yet speaking, I will hear. The wolf and the lamb shall graze together. The lion shall eat straw like the ox. The dust shall be the serpent's food. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, says the Lord. Massive finale that he now describes here. A beautiful picture as he moves into this image of a new heavens and a new earth. And I want you to see, though, I think every Bible at the beginning of verse 17 has a big, bold header right in the way. But please notice the first word of verse 17 is for. So this connects back to the last sentence. In the last sentence, he said, the former troubles are going to be forgotten. They're going to be hidden from my eyes. There's going to be a change. I'm going to have my people. And so their troubles, their sins, their evil ways, they're all going to be forgotten. Well, how is that going to happen? How is that going to be true? And God says, here's how. I'm creating a new heavens and a new earth. And see how how he brings that in again in verse 17. The former things shall not be remembered or come to mind. He says it again as he did in verse 16. I'm creating a new heavens and a new earth. And that's how it will be possible that the former things will no longer come to the mind of God any longer. And then notice throughout this section, what you are reading about is really a complete reversal, a recreation or dramatic change of everything that we understand or know in life just about. For example, like in verses 18 and 19, notice what God says. I'm going to make my people, Jerusalem, to be a joy. Verse 19, I'm going to be able to rejoice in them. That's a very big statement to a bunch of people that he just said, the uh, smoke is in my nostrils (laughs) and your names are before me. And he pulls back and says, there's going to be my people. They will be my servants. There will be this remnant. And I'm going to forget those former things. And they will be a joy to the Lord. I won't spend a lot of time there, but I mean, that's worthy of just like shutting down the sermon for five minutes. Just thinking about the whole idea that God can have joy. The almighty, all sufficient, all powerful God finds joy in his people. It's an amazing concept. Because he doesn't need us. He's he's God. He's all set as he is. And yet here he says, I'm going to have my servants and they're going to bring me joy. A difference of people is being pictured here. Notice verse 20. No more shall there be in it an infant who lives but a few days or an old man who does not fill out his years. The young man will die a hundred years old. The sinner a hundred years old shall be a curse. Here is this picture of the power of death being nullified. No, there's no more death of infants, he says. Every person lives to a hundred is what, what he says. So a picture of the wiping out of death. The power of death has been destroyed. Verses 21 and 22, we might not catch right out of the gate there, but that's a really important image as well. They shall build houses and they're going to live in them. They're going to plant vineyards and they're going to eat the fruit. They're not going to build and somebody else take it is what verse 22 says. They're not going to plant a vineyard and somebody else eat. They're not going to build a house and somebody else take over the house. This is a picture of the covenant curse being removed. Remember what Deuteronomy said would happen to them. If they disobeyed, here's what God said in Deuteronomy 28. You shall build a house, but you will not dwell in it. You shall plant a vineyard, but you 
you shall not enjoy its fruit. This is verbatim looking at Deuteronomy. And now Isaiah is able to prophesy the Lord's message. That won't happen. The covenant curses are removed. It won't be that you're going to be taken away because you're going to belong to God and you're not going to experience being taken out, which is what you see happening with the northern nation, the southern nation, that they'd build and plant and then they'd get wiped out by foreign nations. God says, that's not going to happen with these people. They're going to enjoy the work of their hands and their labor. In fact, verse 23 continues that that picture of reversal and dramatic change. Verse 23, they will not labor in vain or bear children for calamity, for they shall be offspring of the blessed of the Lord and their descendants with them. Here is the picture of you will be with God. You are blessed by God. You are His children. You are His seed. You are the offspring. The covenant of Abraham intact as you are able to belong to Him and experience those blessings. How about verse 24 where God says, and they'll call and I will answer. Now remember we saw a couple chapters ago the people are saying, we're keeping our feast and we're calling out to you. Why don't you see? And God goes, well, in the future, my people, I will hear their prayer. In fact, you have to love the middle of verse 24. While they are yet speaking, I will hear. Right as the words are on their tongue, I will hear and I will answer. Verse 25, talk about a radical change, right? The wolf and the lamb shall graze together. Well, now we're really talking about radical change. Uh, The wolf would go eat the lamb. (laughs) No wolf is grazing on grass if there's a lamb in sight. And so here it says, there's going to be such a difference, such a radical change. The wolf and the lamb will graze together. The lion will eat straw like an ox. This again drives at the radical change that's going to happen. And then in the end of verse 25, that the dust shall be serpent's food. Here is a picture of Satan being defeated, God's people being victorious. Thus that he could say at the end of verse 25, none of them are going to hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain. Not Zion, not my people, not my Jerusalem. They will not be touched. They will not be destroyed or harmed. Now, we read through all that and we have to ask the question, so what's he talking about? Is he talking about a new heavens and a new earth in eternity that God's people are going to live on? The standard kind of takeaway here is to go, this is what we are waiting for, is a recreated earth that God will come down from heaven and he will make this earth completely renovated and recreated. And then righteousness and holiness will dwell here and it will be a beautiful earth. God here and we will be here and so we'll all have wonderful things as we dwell here on the earth. Is that what he means? That's really the big question. And if he meant that, I wouldn't have a problem with that. God can have eternity be however he'd like to be. (laughs) But I don't think that's the intention of this text at all. Because we have to pull back and ask, is the prophecy awaiting a literal, physical fulfillment? And I think that's really what it boils down to. And I understand the challenges that are often presented as you look at this, because people read this and go, well, these things haven't happened yet, right? I mean, for example, verse 20, an infant who is no no more shall there be an infant who lives only a few days. Well, that's still going on. And old men are going to fill out to 100 years old. 
Well, that's not happening. Verse 25, the wolf and the lamb are grazing together. Now, last time I checked when I went to the zoo, there's still fences up. So, uh, no, that's not true. They're all going to eat each other if they uh, had opportunity. Uh, lion eat like straw. Not the last time I went to the zoo on that one either. No, nope, pretty scary, still pretty ferocious, still eating other animals. So people read these things and go, well, these things haven't happened yet. How about verse 23? They will not labor in vain or build children of calamity. I don't think there's any woman raising their hand saying, yep, that's all taken care of. Labor's easy. No big deal. So everybody reads these things and go, well, these things haven't happened yet. And then you come to like Revelation 21, where the imagery appears again of a new heavens and a new earth and go, see, here is New Jerusalem coming down out of heaven to the earth. So we are waiting for all of these things because Revelation 21 occurs after Revelation 20. Remember what happens in Revelation 20? All the dead are raised and all stand before the white throne of God and the judgment seat happens and Satan is cast into the lake of fire and those who are also with him, they're cast into the lake of fire and the others whose names are written in the book go on to eternal life. That's chapter 20. So chapter 21 says new heavens and new earth and new Jerusalem coming down. We must be talking about eternity. Everybody with me? We're all, gonna, all good on eternity. We're all going to live here. Start planting your plants now. No. One of the things that I hope that we've observed in studying through Isaiah, and this is really the value of going verse by verse, chapter by chapter in its order, rather than jumping into a text, is because we have seen Isaiah do something for many, many chapters now where he has used all kinds of physical images to describe spiritual realities. He's done that so many times. I put just a handful on there just because I didn't want to blow up the PowerPoint. I thought, well, that'll be, that'll be enough just to kind of get the idea. For example, in Isaiah 55, remember Isaiah 55 is this great invitation. Come, come, buy and eat and come without price and receive the good food that God is offering. And he's talking about those who'd receive it. And it says that the trees will clap their hands and the mountains will be shouting. That's going to happen, right? Everybody watching the mountains all shaking and quaking and trees clapping, right? Physical imagery for spiritual reality. He talks about there's not going to be any more thorns or briars now. All right, so we're all looking around, right? Uh, Still see thorns and briars. Physical images to describe a spiritual reality. An image of... All of creation rejoicing as you accept the invitation. The radical change that can happen as God takes your life of thorns and briars and makes it into something beautiful like a tree that's planted there with strength and might. God is using the kind of imagery to draw us in to picture what the blessings of God look like. In Isaiah 58, uh, and in verse 12, we were told that we would be the ones who would rebuild the ancient cities and rebuild the ancient ruins of Jerusalem. So we're all going to get our hammers. Better start practicing now how to do some stone work, and we're all going to rebuild the walls of the ancient ruins of Jerusalem, right? As soon as we get that Dome of the Rock off of there, we're all going to rebuild that place, right? Physical image for a spiritual reality. We're building the spiritual kingdom of God that we belong to. We're working in that. We sing a song, you know, to the work. We're in the work. We're laboring and building in that very work. That's what God is picturing. Isaiah chapter 60 and verse 6 says that the camels will cover us. 
<laughs> no. Physical picture for spiritual reality is again the idea of protection and cover and shade and help. Isaiah 61 and verse 6 says, The strangers will tend our flocks and we will eat the wealth of the nations. So I guess we'll just open our doors and wait for the wealth of the nations to come in through the doors. Physical images, spiritual reality. So think about this is still what's going on here. We could do this in every single chapter from chapter 40 on that God continues to use a physical image to describe spiritual realities. We should understand that from books like Zechariah, Daniel, Revelation, God does that. When he speaks about these great realities that were going to come, he uses these kinds of things. So just because we read this language, like in verse 20, that there will never be an infant who lives but a few days is not necessarily saying, now let's all stand by the hospitals and wait for that to stop happening, and then we'll know that it's the end and we'll all be in eternity. Rather, when you say the former things have passed away and those former things are so set aside and so done away with that it's like a new heavens and a new earth, you are describing a radical change. You are describing that things are going to be so different than the way they used to be. And that's why connecting verse 17 to verse 16 is so important. Here are my servants, and they will wear my name, and they will swear by the Lord. Well, how are they able to do that? End of verse 16, because the former troubles are forgotten and hidden from my eyes. Well, how could the former troubles be forgotten, Lord? How can you deal with our sins and say the former troubles are gone? Verse 17, because I'm going to do something radically different. There is a radical change that is going to happen. It is going to be a whole new order, a whole new system, a whole new way of living. It's going to be completely different, so radically different that he would say it is a new heavens and it is a new earth. I want us to observe from this section as well to help with this, that this prophecy is completely consistent with everything that was expected for the Messianic age. That what God is saying to Isaiah is, yes, these people will be judged for their sins, but there will be my servants, there will be a remnant, you will not be totally broken and completely shamed. I will have my people, they will be my servants. And it's going to be radically different when I take away their sins, or if you will, to forget the former things. There's going to be such a radical new order, new way, new order of things that you would not believe that I'm going to accomplish so that I will forget the former ways and former things. This is what the Messianic age was looking at. And I'll just go back through these verses again and see that with you. Verses 18 and 19. He says that God is going to have joy in His people. That's not hard to see in the New Testament at all. That we now become the joy. We studied that like in Luke chapter 15 when He tells the parable of lost things. This joy in heaven that happens... Over one that repents. One becomes a servant and there is joy in heaven. God is rejoicing as every single one comes to him. Here is a picture of that. Is I'm going to have a people and they are going to bring me joy and I will have gladness in them. How about we see in verse 20. This is a picture of the power of death being destroyed. 
It's one of the great things that we have done in our Sunday morning series and getting to look at the cross and seeing death destroyed. The Apostle Paul at the end of chapter 15 after discussing the power of the resurrection says, Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, uh, Satan, where is your sting? I mean, it's just unbelievable. Sin and death, no more power, no more victory. Sin and death, no more able to sting because those things have been set aside and dealt with. The power of death has been destroyed. So verse 20 pictures that. Verses 21 and 22, the curses of the covenant have been removed. Think about how often the New Testament pictures that. Love Colossians chapter 2, verse 14, when it talks about us being circumcised by a circumcision that's not made with hands as we come to Him. He talks about nailing those obligations of the law to the cross. The things that stood against us are debts and obligations under the law. He says, nailed to the cross. Galatians does the same thing when he talks about cursed is everyone who is under the law. Cursed is everyone because they are supposed to do all the things that are under the law. But Christ then becomes a curse for us. And so that's a great picture as well. So the curses of the covenant are removed. You continue on. How about verse 24? Before they call, I will answer. While they are yet speaking, I will hear. How about when we read things like in James when he tells us the prayer of the righteous is powerful and effective. Why we can go to nearly every New Testament book that tells us pray without ceasing, pray without ceasing, to constantly talk to God. These are new covenant images. These are messianic images. The middle of verse 25, the dust shall be the serpent's food. We know that Satan has been defeated. We know that he's been subdued. Revelation 20, a beautiful image when it talks about the dragon as he's trying to destroy the, the child which is Christ and he loses and all that he has knowing that the time is short all that he has left is to wage war on the offspring because his time is short and he knows he can't do anything else you even see it in Revelation 20 as well when you see him attached in the abyss and chained up no longer able to deceive the nations the power of Satan subdued he is defeated now everybody will want to go but what about verse 25 But what about this wolf and the lamb image, right? Hold your hand here and go back to Isaiah 11. This is not the first time Isaiah said this. It's only been 20 years since we were in Isaiah 11. But we got to go back there and check it out. Isaiah 11. That's Scott's fault. He took on my Sunday nights. (laughs) Isaiah 11. Look at Isaiah 11. Verse 1. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. Let's just stop there. We know who we're talking about, right? Stump of Jesse. we got Christ here, right? Here comes the Christ. Verse 2. And the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, a spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and of might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord, and his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. Here's a beautiful picture of here's what's going to happen with Christ. Christ is going to come. He is the root of Jesse. He's the stump. He's going to come. And verse 2. The Spirit of the Lord is going to rest upon him. We see that in the New Testament. Verse 3. He shall not judge 
judge by what he see, what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear. But with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. He shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. I, Psalm 2, right? Psalm 2, Revelation 12, where it strike the earth with the rod of his mouth. Still messianic, still Christ. Verse 5. Righteousness shall be a belt on his waist and faithfulness the belt of his loins. Still Christ. Look at verse 6. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb, and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat, and the calf and the lion and the fatted calf together, as the little child will lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze, their young shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like an ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of a cobra, and the weaned child shall put a hand on the adder's den. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, all the same language, same terminology. For the earth shall be covered in the full knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Now you might come along and say, well, he jumped to the future right there. Now watch verse 10. In that day, that day, what day? The day he was just talking about, the wolf and the lamb and all that. In that day, the root of Jesse... Who shall stand as a signal for the peoples. Of him shall the nations inquire. And the resting place will be glorious. And he's also going to then go on in the rest of that. And talk about Christ. Like verse 12. Will be a signal for the nations. The nations will come in. They will now come. Christ comes. The nations will come in. Is a calling of people in the messianic age. When we read the wolf and the lamb imagery. It's not physical reality but is picturing such a radical change when Christ comes. That's why he uses this kind of language, is to say you won't believe how different it's going to be. In the Messianic age, it will be different than what you've known before. And so he uses imagery like the infant's not going to die, and no one's going to die before they're a hundred, and all of these great images that are being pictured. The idea then is this. It's an idea that I've said a lot over the past few weeks. I hope if there's maybe two words you will walk away from from Isaiah. Renewal, recreation. Over and over again, Isaiah is saying, when Christ comes, there's going to be a renewal. It will be a recreation, a whole new place, a whole new system, a whole new order. My last few minutes, I want you to see how heavy this is in the New Testament. How about like 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17. 2 Corinthians 5, verse 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. This is what Isaiah is looking at. Isaiah is saying, I'm going to have a new people. And they're going to be mine and they'll call on my name and the former things will be forgotten. Well, he says, well, those who are in Christ, guess what? They're experiencing that. The former things are forgotten. The former ways are past. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is in Christ. God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. 
Apostle Paul is saying Isaiah right there is we have the new creation. We are being reconciled to God It's a new relationship. Things have dramatically changed. So now that we can belong to him, the old has passed away. The new has come and now we can enjoy fellowship with God that nobody could enjoy before because of our sins. Let's keep looking at them. Galatians 6 and verse 14. See if you can figure this one out. I'm going to do this one in the Bible class. But far, this is how Galatians is ending. But far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. For neither circumcision counts for anything or uncircumcision, but a new creation. Now stop for a minute. How does that answer the problem of circumcision and uncircumcision? Circumcision and uncircumcision doesn't matter. New creation. And you go, okay. New creation, what's that answer? Because it's a whole new system. It's a whole new way. It's a whole new order. We're not in the old system anymore. We're not in the old covenant. It's not the law of Moses. New creation, new way, new law, new covenant, new system, new everything. It's a whole new playing field. And that's why it says circumcision, uncircumcision, friends. New creation, whole new system, whole new way. That's why he could just say that's the end of the argument. He just leaves it right there. Bang, done. Revelation 21, verse 4. For the former things have passed away. That sounds like Isaiah, verse 16. 20, here, right here, verse 16. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. New creation. Total renewal. Total change. New creation in all things. Everything has been completely reversed. I won't I'll try. I won't promise. I'm trying to make comment on these. But Romans 12, verse 2. Don't be conformed, but be transformed. How? Renewal. The New Testament just goes over and over again with this. 2 Corinthians 4, 16. We do not lose heart. For though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed. New creation. Renewal. Life. This is a radical change that's happened in Christ. Colossians 3, 19. Or excuse me, 3, 9. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on a new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Titus 3, verse 4. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God, our Savior, appeared, He saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy by the washing of regions generation and renewal of the Holy Spirit whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior so that being justified by grace we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life everybody gets weird about those terms right there it's very simple whole new creation total renewal everything's changed and you have new life in Christ what a great picture that is he saved us through his loving kindness not because of our works according to his own mercy washing of regeneration renewal of the Holy Spirit this is what the prophets were talking about whole new picture Ephesians chapter 4 verse 20 but that's not the way you learned in Christ assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus to put off your old self which belongs to the former manner of life and is corrupt through its deceitful desires and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self created 
after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. God is creating. God is renewing. That's why Paul says the old is done and those who are in Christ are a new creation. All things are different. When Christ came, it was for renewal. It was for restoration. It was everything the prophets were speaking of. You see that like in Acts chapter 3 when Peter comes along and talks about this being the times of refreshing that all the prophets were talking about. It's renewal, it's refreshing, it's life, it's recreation. This is what God is offering when Christ comes. It is a new heavens and a new earth. We live under a new covenant with new privileges and new joys of being with the Lord. God has made all things new through Christ. Let me have you walk away then with just one thing. This being a new creation is not about you being a better person. This is kind of this, um, I don't know, what's a good word for it? Renegade spirituality and psychology today. You just got to be a better you. When God is talking about renewal and you being changed and transformed into a new self, it's not that, well, you know, you just got to stop being so bad and you just got to be a better person so that you can you know, be nice to people. And wouldn't it be paradise on earth and we could all just do a little better? Renewal is all about God changing us to be found in his image. It's not about us going, okay, I just got to be a better person. What God does in this recreation and renewal is he says, now here's what I want you to do. I want you to be transformed by Christ. You look at him, you see his teachings, you look at his life, and that will transform you. This is the new order and the new system that is in existence. 2 Corinthians 3 verse 18. And we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. The picture is the more you know God, the more you draw near to God, the more you choose what God desires and what God loves and set aside your own ways and your own devices. God will renew you and change you. It's not about you going around saying, I've got to be a better person. It's about you loving the Lord. And when you love the Lord, you will change. We have a society that's all about, you just got to be a better person. No Dr. Phil, right? You know, okay, Dr. Phil and over. You all got to be better, be more spiritual, all that kind of stuff. God never says that. God never says be a better you. God says, look at me, look at all that I've done, and it will change everything. You will become a new creation that God has accomplished through this great, beautiful picture. I don't want to do so much more, I can't. Let's stop. Where's all the We'll sing invitation song. We invite you to be a new creation, to come to Jesus, to turn away from your sins, to be immersed in water for the forgiveness of your sins, and to see that you are entering into something glorious. 
you are entering into this renewal that has been offered, a radical change, that you can leave the life of sin, that you no longer have to be separated from your God, but now can belong to Him, that you can be His children under a whole new covenant, under a whole new way, a whole new system, so that now your sins are forgiven and the former things have passed and all things are... I can't even get over that kind of invitation. Everything that you've ever done in your life, set aside. That's now the old self. You come to Jesus, and it's a whole new slate, new creation. You start over with Jesus. Will you do that tonight? Will you come and be baptized while you stand? While we stand here.